And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Podbeam, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. You can even tell Alexa to play uh, the show. We would appreciate that. Thank you again for partnering with us. We are almost done with 2021. It's hard to believe. That's the 24th year of Hope Resource Center. 2022 is the 25th year of our organization. And you made that possible and we thank you for that. We have a lot of stuff to talk about today. We're, of course, going to be talking about... <clears throat> Uh, what's going on at the Supreme Court? And you may be thinking, well, Andrew, you've talked about that every week for months. Yes, yeah, I have. And, and the reason is, is because some big, pretty big cases coming up in front of the Supreme Court. And so we're keeping our eye on it, keeping you up to date with what's going on there. Uh, we'll also be looking at some, some new, uh, information coming out about, uh, pain and babies, uh, in the womb. And, and I think it's important that we look at that. As well. So that's what we're going to start. We're going to start over at lifenews.com where uh, a neurobiology professor is confirming that babies do in fact feel pain uh, in abortion. And this is what the article says is after nearly 50 years of legalized abortion on demand, scientists now have an quote enormous body of data confirming that unborn babies can feel pain as early as 12 weeks of pregnancy. According to a professor, at the University of Utah. Uh, writing over at National Review, Professor Maureen Condict uh, says scientists understand much more about unborn babies' development than they did in 1973 when the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade. It's now clear that babies in the womb can feel pain as early as 12 weeks of pregnancy, and certainly by 18 weeks. There is now strong evidence that, that fetuses as early as 12 weeks, exhibit conscious, intentional behavior and that they actively discriminate among similar sensory uh, experiences. She cited research by Stuart <clears throat> Derbyshire, a widely respected brain mapping researcher who's, who abortion activists use to point to as a leading voice against the likelihood of fetal pain. In 2020, Derbyshire determined that his previous conclusions were wrong. And now he believes that even without a fully formed cortex, neural connections from the uh, thalamus to the subplate could be sufficient for pain perception. According to Derbyshire's new research, uh, a balanced reading of that evidence points toward an immediate and unreflective pain experience uh, mediated by the developing function of the nervous system from as early as 12 weeks. Here's what uh, Condic said. There is a long-standing, effectively universal scientific agreement that connections between the fetus's spinal cord and the thalamus region of the brain form between 12 and 18 weeks, and growing evidence that later developing connections to the cortex are not necessary for a conscious experience of pain has radically revised our understanding of fetal neurological development and led to the conclusion that the fetus can and does experience pain from early in the second trimester. Multiple studies demonstrate that both animals and humans display consciousness and suffering, even if the brain's cortex is impaired, immature, or absent. An associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, she said observations with 4D ultrasounds and very premature babies born as early as 21 weeks of pregnancy also provide visual evidence that unborn babies feel pain in the second trimester. 
Moreover, although the human brain does not reach maturity until approximately age 25, human perception of pain tends to stay constant throughout the lifespan, meaning that one's experience of suffering is not dependent on mature uh, cortical uh, security, Kondik said. Then there are studies showing that unborn babies as early as 14 weeks can distinguish between music and vibration noises and unborn Babies at 23 weeks can recognize nursery rhymes, all of which suggest complex brain development and a level of awareness. These findings are especially significant as the Supreme Court prepares to hear a case that challenges Roe v. Wade directly and could allow states to protect unborn babies from abortion again. The Mississippi law at the center of the case bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, but current legal precedent prohibits states from protecting unborn babies before viability, about 22 weeks. The growing evidence about pain and awareness add to the pro-life position that unborn babies are unique, valuable human beings, even at an early, very early stages of pregnancy. And abortion is cruel violence against defenseless children that must end. I wanted to start there because I want us to get an understanding of, of where we are. So when, when folks talk about believe the science, you're anti-science, blah, blah, blah. We, we've heard this over the last, what, uh, two years with COVID. Uh, you have science deniers. You have people that that worship science. You have people that worship doctors and medical professionals. And then you look at a number of cases, whether it be climate change or, or anything. You have people that say you're a science denier or you're uh, you're pro science. The reality is, science takes time. And with the advancement of technology and the and the ability to, the ability to study more. Then we get to a place where we go, okay, well, maybe we were wrong 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. With the advancement in technology, and that's what this professor was saying, was with the ability now with 4D ultrasounds, we can see different things. With where we are with technology, we now know more. So you have Derbyshire, who's done amazing research, and, and even to the point where where pro-abortion folks have said and cited Derbyshire as the guy that, that, that the one that can say babies don't feel pain. And now he's come out and said, yeah, I think I was wrong. I think I was wrong. Now, credit to him. Because what we've seen over the last two years with the pandemic and with other things and with science, uh, with, with uh, climate change and all these things, what you have is, is many folks refuse to say when they were wrong. Now, I learned way back in the day when I was participating in science fairs that you would put out a hypothesis and then you would try to prove that hypothesis. And if it was wrong, you were to say, hey, my hypothesis was wrong. That was the whole point. We did research. Here's what I thought was going to happen, but here's what actually happened. And we run with it. So credit to the doctor, to the, to the scientist that says, hey, I was wrong. I do now believe babies feel pain. And so we're living in a society now that says, well, it's about viability. And for many, viability would be 25, 26 weeks. Well, guess what? We've advanced in technology. We've advanced in our ability to protect babies. How do I know that? Well, I have a story out of Alabama. Listen to this. An Alabama boy who weighed less than a pound at birth after his mother went into a labor at only 21 weeks and one day of gestation, has been certified the world's most premature baby to survive. Guinness World Records, 
and UAB Hospital announced Wednesday that Curtis Means, who weighed 14.8 ounces, that's 420 grams at birth, set the new record. Born 132 days premature on July 5th, 2020, with a twin who didn't survive. Curtis is now healthy and 16 months old. Dr. Brian Sims, who was the attending physician, said statistics show that children born so young have virtually no chance of survival. But Curtis beat the odds. We typically advise for compassionate care in situations of such extremely preterm births, Sims said in a statement from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, which operates the hospital. This allows the parents to hold their babies and cherish what little time they may have together. Instead, Curtis grew stronger and stronger and was discharged after 275 days in the hospital. He needed help from therapists to begin using his mouth and eating. Being able to finally take Curtis home and surprise my older children with their younger brother is a moment I will always remember. That's what his mother said, Michelle Butler of Alabama. A fetus is considered full term at 40 weeks. But Butler went into labor after carrying twins just over half that length of time. She was transferred to UAB Hospital, which is a regional neonatal intensive care unit, where she gave birth to Curtis. Uh, and Kesa. Uh, Kesa died a day later, but Curtis was able to come off a ventilator after three months, following months of round-the-clock care. He went home in April. While Curtis still needs a feeding tube and supplemental oxygen because he was so premature, Sim said he's in good health considering how early he was born. We do not know what all the future will hold for Curtis since there is no one else like him. He started writing his own story the day he was born. That story will be read and studied by many and hopefully will help improve care of premature infants around the world. Guinness said Curtis beat by a day the previous record, which held for only a month. Richard Hutchinson from Wisconsin was born at a gestational age of 21 weeks, two days in June 2020. Think about that. The baby wasn't just premature. The baby was born at 21 weeks and one day. Most people find out the gender of the baby around 20 weeks. So this, we should be applauding this. And I love what the doctor said that this is going to, this case is going to be studied and, and, and hopefully it's going to allow us to better serve babies that are born premature. Think about the, the magnitude of this. And, and, and was it all over the news? No, it was in some places. The AP wrote about it. Local outlets there in Alabama wrote about it. But it should be celebrated. We, we should be celebrating the advancement of technology and science and the ability to save children at an early stage. Look, the reality is, as, as we continue to progress, with, with our ability and with our technology and with our research, we're going to be able to do amazing things. Amazing things. That, that's going to make abortion look even more barbaric. Do you understand that? So in the 70s, when we had very little technology, maybe abortion didn't seem so barbaric. Because we weren't really sure what was going on. Does the baby feel pain? Is the baby a baby until vibe? I mean, you know, what, what's going on in there? So a lot of people could just walk and, and kind of be blind to the truth. A lot of people could just say, look, abortion's okay because it's not a baby anyway. Yeah, you can't say that in 2021. When we're having baby, look, 
I follow this stuff pretty closely, and I didn't even know that in June 2020 there was a baby born at 21 weeks and two days. I didn't know that in Wisconsin. No idea. These things happen, and they're not happening at giant hospitals, in giant cities, at research institutions. But these things are happening, and so what it's going to do is make abortion look even more barbaric. So what are we doing as a society? What are we doing as a culture? What are we doing as the church? What conversations are we having? What do our laws say? That's why these cases that are going in front of the Supreme Court are so important. Because these things matter. You know, for a time, viability meant 25, 26, 27 weeks. Now, viability could mean 21 weeks, technically. Now, we believe life begins at conception. So viability is kind of a, uh, that, that's not a bar that I said of, well, you know, abortion is, is okay up until viability. But the reality is abortion proponents are going to have to deal with this. They've been arguing viability for so long. Well, now viability looks a lot different in 2021. And it's certainly going to look a lot different in 2025 and 2030 as technology continues to advance and research continues to advance. You know, if if, if you're going to make the argument, which pro-aborts do, if you're going to make the argument that no one wants abortion, of course we want less abortions. Then you should be celebrating the science and technology. And also at some point have to get away from the convenience of abortion. You know, are we willing to do that as a culture and as a society? I don't know. Are there judges willing to, to make the hard decisions? I don't know. As we spend the rest of our time today on this show, we're going to look at some things that are happening in D.C. at the Supreme Court level. What it means for the future of the pro-life movement. What it means for the future of the the, the originalist move, movement. This says we got to get originalists on the courts. We talked about that some last week. And you can go back and listen to that show. So what does it mean? One thing is we're celebrating with that mom in Alabama as she holds her baby who is healthy and was saved right there in in Alabama in 21 weeks and one day. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation today, look, there's a lot to talk about and and, and I think it's important that we continue to look at uh, where we're going as a society and as a culture. Be able to, to get through the nonsense, right? So, so you hear, if you watch any of the news or, or on social media, you're going to hear folks say, oh, you're, you're anti-science. Oh, you're pro-science. We see that a lot. Oh, you don't care about women. Look. They throw the labels out, especially at pro-lifers, because they don't have anything else. You know, there was a time, I guess, where you might could make the argument that it's not a life in the womb. Well, you can't make that argument anymore. Those days are gone. 
So, so if we follow the science, the science says babies are now feeling pain at a very early, early stage in the womb. <clears throat> the, the person that we talked about in the previous segment, the, the, the professor would say the baby actually starts feeling pain 10 to 11 weeks. Well, that's going to change things. Because when, when you constantly tell people, trust the science, trust the science, listen to the researchers, and then the science and the researchers come out and say, hey, baby feels pain at 10 and 11 weeks. Well, what are we going to do with that? When the, when the, the guy that, that's, that's kind of been the, the go-to for pro-aborts that have said, hey, there's no pain, babies don't feel pain, when he comes out and says, actually, I think I was wrong. I'm pretty confident now babies are certainly feeling pain at an early stage. That's going to change some things. Now that, that changes things in a society that is honest and transparent and truthful. Now, now I don't know if we're there, <laughs> uh, obviously, but, but I wanted us to, to look over at National Review is doing a focus, uh, I think in their latest, uh, issue, uh, really focusing on Roe v. Wade and, uh, and, and what's going on in the courts. And if you have time, go over there and read some of their stuff. But I'll bring some of it to you because I think it's important. Uh, so there's a piece over there, Meet the Real Pro-Life Movement. Uh, and it's written by Catherine Lopez. Uh, it starts like this. It says, we do nobody favors by living a lie about abortion and human identity. Let's care for one another better. Reproductive freedom is for, quote, everybody. Period. That was a recent tweet from NARAL Pro-Choice America. Uh, they were protesting restrictive abortion laws in Colombia. And trans men in particular offered no support under the current legal system. A previous tweet from the organization complained. A woman who identifies as a man is pregnant, probably needs something better than an abortion. Actual care for the two people involved when the father, a man, has abandoned them or, or they haven't told him would be actual health care. An abortion is no freedom for the unborn child who dies. The upcoming Mississippi case that will be heard at the Supreme Court is an opportunity for us as a nation to take a saner look at abortion in America and at the alternatives to it. There is freedom in life. Abortion enslaves a woman to a lifetime of knowing she ended the life of her child. A country to this uh, preferring abortion to walking with women and families for life. People know what Planned Parenthood is, although there is a lot of misinformation about what exactly they do beyond abortion. Few people know much about the resources to help moms be moms. And that's a huge opportunity for life. One Saturday morning, pre-COVID, this author was standing in the communion line at Old St. Patrick's Cathedral in Lower Manhattan. It's one of the monthly witnesses for life. There is a mass and then a procession down the block to pray the rosary outside Manhattan's Planned Parenthood. There was a protest outside, and they were screaming at us as we prayed. They were saying this, hey, hey, ho, ho, you don't care if women die. There was a protest there again the first Saturday of this month. The ignorant chant was striking. As I was standing behind two sisters of life who surrender their lives to God and to serve women and children, the sisters take them into their home as family. The sisters walk with them for the rest of their lives. The pregnant moms who come to them for help. I wish more people knew about the Sisters of Life. I wish more people knew about the actual pro-life movement. It's not just about defunding Planned Parenthood and undoing Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court case that made abortion legal. It's about love. 
Women deserve better than abortion, and their unborn babies certainly do. In the new issue of National Review, uh, they're going to focus on why it's so important that the regime of Roe come to an end. Uh, this, This author... Catherine Lopez wrote in the issue about the radical hospitality of the pro-life movement. It's only a window in. Students for Life guide campuses in providing pregnancy support. Uh, the, the president of that organization, Kristen Hawkins, recently spoke at, at um, Wesley. The talk was titled, The Future is Anti-Abortion, Preparing for a Post-Roe America. Initially, it wasn't well received, to put it mildly, but when she finally did get to speak, Students were surprised to learn that the Seven Sisters School has forced moms out of campus housing. When they learned about Students for Life Standing with You initiative to make sure pregnant and parenting college students are not sidelined, it was hard for them to continue to believe, as many often do, that pro-lifers don't care about women. The November newsletter for Women's Care Center, which is in 12 states, features the testimony of a black woman named Taylor and her baby boy. It took me a few buses to get here, she said, but at my first appointment, I smiled for the first time in six months. My counselor cared about me in a way nobody had before. Her regular doctor told her that her pregnancy was a problem, as doctors have been known to tell women of color in lower income brackets. I've heard it described in New York City as a search and destroy mission. It's why part of the support for women often includes someone to accompany them on checkups. The pregnancy wasn't the problem. It was the fact that it was that that woman was alone at women's care center. You wanted to know what was actually going on. You listened to me at women's care center. They make a promise to walk with a woman as long as she needs us. President Ann Mannion emphasizes that their training manual for anyone working with women at their center stresses that many women's care center offers non-judgmental support. You see, this is the pro-life movement. It's more than signs outside abortion clinics We have miles to go, but pro-lifers have been in the work and won't quit whatever happens to to Roe. And that's right. That's what I try to say here every single week. People that that are saying that, oh, the pro-lifers don't care about women, pro-lifers this, pro-lifers that, they don't know who pro-lifers are. They don't understand that, that there are men and women that are serving every single day those facing unplanned pregnancies. They don't understand that there are millions of dollars being spent every single year to provide housing, to provide uh, medical care, to provide baby showers, to provide resources for these moms to make a choice for life. They don't understand that the pro-life movement, even if that mom chooses abortion, doesn't give up on that mom. They don't understand that the pro-life movement also has organizations that are working with these moms post-abortion. To, to find healing. You see, what, what you'll see on the, the cable news outlets and on social media is the pro-life movement is hateful and angry and, and they just stand outside abortion clinics yelling terrible things. That's not true. The ones that are yelling obscenities and terrible things are the pro-abortion movement. I went to the March for Life a few years ago and when we made our way in DC at, to the Supreme Court, There were people out there yelling at the pro-lifers, yelling. I'm glad my kids weren't with me. You see, it's not the pro-lifers that are yelling obscenities. It's not the pro-lifers that that are that are doing terrible things. Now, some would say, oh, well, some of the pro-lifers are showing graphic images of abortion. Yeah, some of them are. And that may make you uncomfortable. 
And, and that may not be the strategy, the best strategy moving forward, but the reality is that is what an abortion is. And so even though it may make you uncomfortable, it is something that we need to see to understand what is happening. Now, we're not going to post those at, at Hope. We're not going to do those things. But but the reality is I would encourage all pro-lifers to go get a glimpse of what an abortion is. You need to know what it is. I've watched videos. I've watched things that I, I wish I wouldn't have had to watch. And the only reason I watched them was because I needed to know. I needed to know what what I'm standing for and what I'm standing against. And in watching those videos, it allowed me to get a better glimpse of this is why I'm pro-life. And we're making a difference. And more people need to know about it. But guess what? We don't do it so that people would know about it. We do it because our neighbors need us. And I'm proud to be a part of that movement. We'll be back. Boy, it doesn't get much better than that. Good old Randy Travis. I could just sit in that. If you don't know country music, my goodness, just go listen to some Randy Travis. And that's one of the best ones. Uh, thanks for playing that one, Dave. As we, as we continue the conversation and as we, as we continue to look at what's happening around our country, uh, specifically with the Supreme Court, there's another piece over at National Review that I want to spend some time on. Uh, and, and they make the argument that Roe undermines the Supreme Court's legitimacy. And again, I told you, go look at National Review uh, this this month. In the next few weeks, they're going to be having some pieces specifically devoted uh, to the Roe v. Wade uh, abortion and life issue. In Dobbs v. Jackson, women's health organization, the state of Mississippi has directly confronted the Supreme Court with an argument that, believe it or not, uh, no state has pressed since Pennsylvania did so 29 years ago in Planned Parenthood versus Casey that Roe v. Wade was a grievous constitutional error and should be overturned. Casey was a close run thing, a five to four decision that both preserved a virtually unlimited right to abortion and exposed how nakedly political and lawless was the jurisprudence that shielded the abortion license from democratic accountability. The Dobbs case, then, is a long-awaited opportunity for the court to get right with the Constitution. There are now six justices appointed by Republican presidents who are known or strongly believed to think that Roe and Casey were terrible constitutional blunders, resulting in an appalling toll of human lives. There has been no better moment in the last half century than the present one for the writing of an injustice, an unconstitutional injustice. Yet, that is just what many of us thought when Casey was on the docket. That with the appointments of five justices by Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, in addition to the Roe dissenters then still on the court, William Rehnquist and, and Byron White, we had an excellent chance of seeing Roe fall. The shock of the Casey ruling on June 29, 1992, was that Roe was propped up in joint opinion by three of those GOP appointees, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter even while they declined to affirm that Roe had been correctly decided. Instead, by playing fast and loose with the doctrine of stare decisis, the the court asserted that 1973 decision must be preserved because otherwise the court's legitimacy would be called into question. Now, we cannot peer into the souls of the authors of the Casey decision to determine whether they were afraid to spark a firestorm of criticism of their deep-sixing a woman's right to choose, or feared 
that our politics would become more antagonistic or were themselves quietly in favor of the abortion license. But we know that no good reason existed for the disaster that was Casey and that they offered none. As we and others have pointed out, the Mississippi law at issue in Dobbs, which prohibits elective abortions after 15 weeks gestation, cannot be rationally upheld on any ground that does not repudiate Roe and Casey. But now, 30 annual terms of the court later, the hue and cry of abortion supporters who fear that Roe may fall this time is that the median justices, they no doubt have in mind Chief Justice John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, must cling steadfastly to Roe and Casey for the sake of, you guessed it, the court's legitimacy. It's a funny thing, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. None of the table thumpers insisting on its importance can quite say what it is or where it comes from. The other branches of our government derive their legitimacy from the election of their office holders, according to the Constitution and legal processes and the conformity of their official acts with the Constitution. In short, if public officials acquired their offices legally and act legally, the legitimacy of the institution in which they serve is not formally in question. Widespread criticism of their decision making as foolish or wrongheaded, even at times by majorities, is par for the course in our system, but does not raise a question of legitimacy. It might in a parliamentary system where governments may fall and elections can be called when democratic sentiment turns into or turns against a ministry's performance and makes itself felt in the legislature. But ours is a system of elections limited to those fixed on the calendar. An unpopular president with congressional majorities against him is no less legitimate for all that. And so too Congress and its members are legitimate makers of law regardless of the popularity of members, parties, leaders, or the houses of Congress themselves. If the legislative and executive branches, branches obey the Constitution, the law's demand for legitimacy is satisfied. Anything beyond this formal norm is for the electorate to decide at the next opportunity. Now, apply these observations to the federal judiciary. The justices duly appointed by the president after being nominated by him and confirmed by the Senate hold their offices legitimately during good behavior, i.e. for life or until they choose to resign or retire, subject only to impeachment. They are, by the Constitution, relieved of any need to respond to the electorate to please voters or any other identifiable public. That leaves the one thing they have in common with members of the other branches that they may be judged by their conduct in office. The public can respond politically, legally, and in extreme with the penalty of removal from office. Reform of the court for sound reasons should not be off the table. But merely shouting at them that their decisions are illegitimate because one dislikes the result and threatening drastic measure, measures such as court packing simply to get different ones is an ought by them to be considered sound and fury signifying nothing. The Casey decision evidently did not understand this point. O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter described the court's legitimacy as a product of substance and perception that shows itself in the people's acceptance of, of the judiciary as fit to determine what the nation's law means and declare what it demands. This was at once a grandiose vision of the court's role in our constitutional order and a kind of cringing neediness for the people's acceptance. However, that was to be measured. Elsewhere in their opinion, the justices spoke of the really important cases they decide as those where the court's interpretation of the Constitution caused the contending sides of a national controversy to end their national division by accepting a common mandate rooted, mandate rooted in the Constitution. 
There was the Olympian manner again, but also the same neediness just beneath the surface. For what if the attempted healing of a national division didn't work? And of course it didn't. As everyone knows and could see at the time, by clinging steadfastly to Roe, a ruling Casey exposed as lacking any roots in the text, logic, structure, or original understanding of the Constitution. The court only exasperated the country's divisions and guaranteed continuing controversy. What then became of the, quote, legitimacy the justices so craved? Contrast this alternation between thundering, we're in charge, and muling, please love us, with the robust, confident constitutionalism of Chief Justice Rehnquist and the Casey dissent. Rehnquist, whose opinion is not as well known as the bristling dissent of Justice Scalia, never yielded an inch toward considering Roe a binding precedent and took the majority to school on the doctrine of stare decisis. More important, Rehnquist had a sober understanding of the court's legitimacy. Remarking on the joint opinion's strange argument that a highly controversial ruling should be preserved, whether right or wrong, or else public estimation of the court's legitimacy would decline. Here's what Rehnquist said. Because the court's duty is to ignore public opinion and criticism on issues that come before it, its members are in perhaps the worst position to judge whether a decision divides the nation deeply enough to justify such uncommon protection. Although uncommon protection, or although many of the court's decisions divide the the populace to a large degree, we have not previously on that account shielded away from applying normal rules of stare decisis when urged to reconsider early or decisions. A judiciary tasked with the duty of sometimes contradicting the people's will is irresponsible, in Rehnquist's view, if it consults public opinion in making its decisions. Not for Rehnquist was that poisonous combination of preening and cringing that characterized the Casey joint opinion. Public protest should not alter the normal application of stare decisis, lest perfectly law protect or protest actively by penalized by the court itself. Sometimes, indeed, the Chief Justice observed, taking the very historical examples uh, by the joint opinion, the overturning of a precedent burnished the court's reputation by frankly acknowledging past errors in such cases as Plessy versus Ferguson and others. But these precedents were not repudiated, Rehnquist pointed out, for the sake of raising the court's profile in public opinion or in response to the shifting winds of political controversy or to preserve or enhance the court's legitimacy. And the article goes on and on. I would I would encourage you to go read it. The point that they're making is the court is legitimate. The court is legitimate, just like Congress is legitimate, just like the White House is legitimate. The justices that are serving on the court were appointed constitutionally. They hold an, a legitimate office. And so we do not want a court made up of judges that are worried about public opinion. Look, when when senators and congressmen make comments and, and do speeches, they do so understanding, hey, if I upset public opinion, I may be voted out of office. Presidents make decisions based on public opinion. Hey, if I if I do this or do that, I may be voted out of office. We've seen over over the last two years. Inflation currently up higher than it's been in the last 30 years. Wages down because of inflation being up. Economy struggling. Jobs looking okay. Unemployment getting better. But in the month of September, we had over 4 million people leave their job. 
So public opinion matters. When you look at the new polling that's coming out, when you look at what happened in Virginia, we saw Governor Yunkin, who, who will be the governor, beat out McAuliffe. No one really saw that coming. You saw Republicans take over the House. No one really saw that coming. Everybody looking to the midterm elections in, in 2022, everybody's saying, look, it looks like Republicans are going to take over the House and the Senate in Washington. Why? Because public opinion matters. But when it comes to the courts, public opinion should not matter. They shouldn't be sitting around saying, well, if we decide this and if we overturn Roe, there's going to be people rioting and protesting in the street. That's not, that's not up to them. Is the ruling a good one or not? Is the ruling constitutional or not? That's what they have to concern themselves with. Not public opinion. They don't have to concern themselves with legitimacy because they're already legitimate. They're sitting on the court. Now the question is, will they do that? Will they see their job for what it is and do the hard thing and overturn a bad law? A bad court decision? I don't know. I sure hope they do, but I don't know the answer to that. We'll find out in the coming months. We'll be back. As we finish up today, hopefully, like I say every week, that this was fruitful. Look, when when we're looking at court decisions and court cases, uh, there there is some concern of the politicalization of the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, it's always been, you know, somewhat politicized. But the reality is you, you have, you don't want your court, your, your justices to become politicians. Because when they become politicians, then they are more concerned with political opinion or public opinion than they are of the Constitution. And that's a problem. I want decisions being based on the Constitution. I don't want them finding and, and sifting through like they, they did with Roe and like they did in 92 with Casey versus Planned Parenthood. I don't want them going and, and going, uh, it's not really in here, but we don't want to upset people. And, and the fact of the matter is, regardless of what you do, you're going to upset people. So I find it funny that they're concerned about public opinion. Now, not the public opinion of pro-lifers, the ones that, that put them there. They're concerned with public opinion of, of those pro-aborts that that hate them and aren't going to be happy with them no matter what. But that's where we are. I don't want the justices, you know, licking their finger and putting it in the air and seeing which way the wind's blowing. I don't need that from our, our justices. Politicians are going to do that. Politicians are going to do that. Political pundits are going to do that because public opinion matters to them. Their job is based on public opinion. When it comes to justices, they're lifelong appointees. They're there to be objective and to look at what the Constitution says and base their decisions on that. They're not there to enforce. They're there to interpret. We have the branches of government for a reason. And when when the judiciary branch, the judicial branch, starts worrying about public opinion, Oh, well, if we make this decision, it might upset some people. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to. No matter what you decide on, whether it be vaccine mandates or lockdowns, religious exemptions, none of that. You're going to upset some people. 
I mean, is there ever a Supreme Court case that, that doesn't upset some people? I, I, I don't think so. But their job is not to say, well, this is what Twitter is saying, so we might need to go that direction. No, no, I don't need you to do that. I need you to, to look at the Constitution, and I need you to make your decisions based on what the Constitution says. And if there's a public outcry from some folks, which there's going to be, regardless of what you do. Now, I will say one side. There will be no violence. There will be no rioting. There will be no burning down of the buildings. Now, the other side, there may be some of those things. I'll just put that out there. But I, even even if they make that decision. The reality is when they go to a restaurant, they probably will be accosted. They probably will be approached. And that's a problem. They shouldn't be. But that's what will happen. We've seen it with politicians voting on the infrastructure bill and Build Back Better plan and all that. You've seen Democratic candidates being uh, attacked because Senator Manchin and Cinema and uh, are, are, are bucking and not going and following in line. And so what's happening? They're being followed into bathrooms. They're being followed to their car. So, yeah, if, if the court makes a tough decision that upsets a lot of people, there may be some of that. And certainly if they overturn Roe, there's going to be people that are upset because it's a golden calf. For them, it is the decision that trumps all other decisions. It is the right that trumps all the rights, even though it's not found anywhere in the Constitution. So, yeah, it's going to be messy. That's why you were appointed for a lifetime. That's why you're not subject to the votes of the people. That's why we don't stack the court. Because we believe in the branches of government. Now, there are some folks that don't believe in the branches of government, and they would they would seek to utilize the court to push their agenda. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And look, we're at a time right now where we're just all being pundits what's our opinion on this my, my opinion changes every single week on do i think the court's going to overturn it or not it really does i still feel good but it, it really goes up and down kavanaugh makes me nervous so i don't know i don't know what's going to happen but i don't want them making decisions based on public opinion they need to make their decisions based on the constitution as a pro-lifer if they do that we win But we'll see. We'll talk to you next week.